Hi, this is Melanie Metters, author, publicist, and geek extraordinaire, and you are listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. Today's guest is a writer of speculative fiction, a blogger, a freelance publicist, and the publicity coordinator for Ragnarok Publications and Mechanical Muse. Her short stories have been published in Circle Magazine, The Wheel, and Prick of the Spindle, and was a finalist in the 2014 Jim Bayon Memorial Science Fiction Contest. She regularly blogs for sites like Geek Mom, The Once and Future Podcast, and SF Signal. She's been known to befriend wandering garden gnomes and do battle with metal-eating squirrels and has been called a superhero on more than one occasion. Her latest short story, A Wholehearted Halfling, can be found in the new heroic fantasy anthology Champions of Ataltus, along with other top fantasy authors, including Ed Greenwood, Cat Rambo, David Farland, Lucy A. Snyder, and many more, available now on Amazon. Writer, publicist, geek, mom, and all-around collective force of non-stop awesome Skyping in from central Massachusetts, the Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Melanie Metters to the show. Melanie! Hello! Thanks for hanging out today. Thank you for having me on. It's a blast to have you on. I've been looking forward to have you on the little showgram for quite some time now. Uh, you are a collective force of awesome, like I mentioned previously. Um, a publicist. You are a, a writer of speculative fiction. You are a extensive blogger. You, you work with the Once and Future podcast. You just do all sorts of geeky, awesome things. So it's really good to have you on the show today to introduce you to our tens and tens of listeners <laughs> and talk about all things geek today. So the first thing I wanted to talk about, of course, is that you are now an official, real, big deal, published author on Amazon. You are now in the Champions of Ataltus anthology that was a successfully crowdfunded project uh, alongside some of the best fantasy authors in the genre. Yay! And you wrote about um, halflings. Yes, I did. <laughs> Maybe tell us a little bit about Champions of Ataltus for those who are uninitiated. Okay, well, Champions of Ataltus is a heroic fantasy anthology, which means that it's sword and sorcery. You know, if you like Lord of the Rings or Conan or things like that, um, then it's right in your field. And the editors worked really hard to collect all of the people that they thought would represent that genre really well and um, who are not only best-selling authors, but are fan favorites and just really represent what their vision is for the world. Um, it is set in a shared world, which means that um, Mark Tassin, the creator of Italtis, went and wrote an extensive world Bible, um, the whole history and religion and all the different peoples and things of Italtis, and um, he sent that out to the authors who then read and wrote about something about the world that interested them. And then what inspired you, you to write about uh, Halflings? Um, well, <laughs> Mark invited me to write for the anthology, so I had no story in mind to begin with. So I started reading through the World Bible, and I started thinking, well, you know, champions. I was trying to think of knights in shining armor and, and different things that put someone in mind of a champion. And, of course, being the weirdo that I am, I, I could not think of an idea for a story that embodied your normal champion ideal, this character just kept popping into my head. Just an ordinary girl just wearing a dress around her village. And I kind of resisted it at first, but, you know, having written for a very long time, I, I, I realized, you know, you just shouldn't do that. You should follow the character along and see where it goes. So, um, yeah, I ended up writing about halflings. <laughs> Yeah, I got a chance to actually read your story. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's got charm. It's got humor. It's got um, 
Ogres. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I really enjoyed the read. And you are, uh, you kind of specialize in, in short fiction. Um, yeah, so far, yes. What is it about short fiction that appeals to you, Melanie Matters? Well, I, I kind of like that it, it appeals to my ADHD side. Um, <laughs> I can really focus 100% on that one story for a very short time. I'm really good at kind of hyper-focusing on things and really getting into something. But then, you know, I kind of burn out after a while. So short fiction really works with the way I work. They end before I get too bored with them. I love being able to have the short focus on it. So it just works well for me. Which uh, which short story writers have you been influenced by like over the years? Like who really got you into the short form? Robin McKinley has always been one of my favorite authors, um, and she's probably most well-known for her novels, but she also has um, several uh, collections of her shorter fiction. And so I always I really enjoyed reading those growing up. Same thing with um, Ella Montgomery, the author of Anne of Green Gables, actually. Um, she had several mm -hmm. short fiction collections, too. So um, I was able to enjoy reading about characters and settings that were in novels, but short stories about them. And so I think that that really taught me well how to capture the feeling of a whole world, but in a short form. So, yeah, really, um, I'm not sure that I know of specific short fiction authors, but mostly um, novelists that have also written short fiction. Okay. Any plans for any longer works, like novels or anything like that? Yeah, actually, I finished a novel last year, um, and I'm working on revising it right now. Excellent, excellent. Any, any big plans? Are you going to get that uh, shopped around by an agent or anything like that? Yeah, or? I'm hoping to, um, after I'm done revising, I'm hoping to send it off to agents and and. Test my luck. <laughs> Excellent. What is that uh, fantasy or? Yes, it's um, it's YA fantasy. Any other short stories that you're working on right now, or? Um, not that I'm working on right now. I figure after I'm done with my novel, then I will. Um, I have a couple of ideas that I might work up and and see what happens. It must have been pretty exciting to finally uh, get that Champions of Atoltis uh, anthology out into the wild. Oh uh, yes. I saw your your Facebook page. You had like a celebration and all sorts of fun things going on. <laughs> yep, it's the first book I've been in. I've been in magazines and things like that, and you know it was always exciting to be able to go to Barnes and Nobles and say, "Hey, look, I'm in this magazine." But um, I've never been in a book before, so that was pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, very cool. That used to be one of my dreams is to be able to go to any bookstore and just point and say, hey, there's my book. I didn't even give a, I didn't even give a shit if anybody bought it. I could just say, uh, hey, there's my book. Um, so as far as author publicity, you've recently uh, been promoting the Kickstarter anthology uh, Mech Age of Steel, which is by Ragnarok Publications, who you are the publicist for. Uh, can you tell us about that anthology and is it funded as of now or is it close to being funded? Um, it's almost funded. It's pretty close. Mech is an anthology of giant robot stories, basically. A couple of years ago, we had a Kickstarter for Kaiju Rising, which was a collection of stories about giant monsters. And that worked out really well for us. It was the first um, Kickstarter that Ragnarok did. It seemed to be really popular. Um, we still have people today discovering it and telling us, you know, wow, this is awesome. And Mech is the follow-up for that, where now instead of giant monsters, we have giant robots. Not in all of the stories, but some of the stories, we have the robots battling the monsters and, you know, different um, exploring different relationships between having giant robots and people, monsters, and how that works with different settings and things like that. 
we have some pretty great authors in there. Um, Kevin J. Anderson, Anton Strout, Jeannie Koch, Jason Hugh, um, lots of really cool people that I think um, it's pretty exciting. So, And we did have uh, Mr. Tim Markwitz and uh, Nick Sharps yes. from Ragnarok Publications uh, on the show recently. So folks want to check the show archive, they can dive into uh, my interview with the two of those boys talking Mech Age of Steel and that awesome Kickstarter. And it is... It's, it's getting funded there. It should be funded hopefully next weekish, yeah. sometime yep. hopefully. So plotting right along. <clears throat> so there's a whole kind of Pacific Rim vibe, and uh, maybe in some of the stories with the robots punching the shit out of uh, monsters and vice versa. So so as far as your interest in giant robots, is, are there any specific giant robots that you've liked over the years? Uh, I, I was always pretty big on Voltron, which. Isn't technically a giant robot. <laughs> um, it's a bunch of smaller giant. Well, I guess smaller giant robots that make a really big ass giant robot. <laughs> yes, and actually, that is what started my whole obsession. When I was little, I'm I can't even remember how old I was. Like seven, maybe. I would come home from school, and that would be on TV. And I can't remember <laughs> what um, channel that would be on. But I was completely obsessed with that show. I mean. That was like the beginning of, of my fan fiction. When I was seven years old, I used to like write all these stories about Voltron and all the characters <laughs> and oh my goodness. And, and really, it kind of just fed into my whole, um, when I was five, instead of watching cartoons on TV, I used to watch Creature Double Feature in the morning on, on Channel 56, I remember this, um, <laughs> which was where all the Godzilla movies and things like that used to be on. And I mean, they had like Jet Jaguar, which was a uh, robot. And so, I mean, I always just liked the giant robot thing. I mean, especially like, like Transformers, Voltron, different like Robotech and uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion mm. and things like mm. that. So, <laughs> yeah, I got into the anime stuff later on. Um, but yeah, Voltron and uh, any kind of show that had uh, like the one guy was kind of nerdy the I guess the, <laughs> yep. the, gr the green guy and i was yep. always kind of like that guy so i was like oh that's cool he's in a you know he has his own robot and it's green and green used to be my favorite well i guess it still is my one of my favorite colors but yeah i used to always be like oh yeah i want to be that guy like i didn't want to be the cool like red Jeez. guy or yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah i wanted to be the <laughs> i wanted to be the other guy but yeah, yeah that's awesome. Did you did you ever get into like drawing pictures of of any of the characters or anything like that, or just writing stories? Um, I tried to draw. Um, I've I've always been a better drawer of um people and animals and things like that. But robots, for some reason, I think there's too many straight lines. <laughs> I've never been really good at the robot thing. But I have like built models and things like that of uh, the Gundams and things like that um, from um, that anime series. And I've always liked, um, you know, when we were little, we had all the little um, action figures and we had, we actually had a Voltron that came apart and you could put it back together mm -hmm. um, into the lions and then into the giant robot. So that was always fun too. We really liked the toys. <laughs> yeah. My cousin had that actually. I remember going to his house and being like, oh, I want to play with the, <laughs> the fucking Voltron. <laughs> so yeah. I was like a seven year old kid. Like I want to play with the fucking Voltron. Yeah. <laughs> I've got four kids and they bring Transformers home these days and I have no clue how to put these things together. Oh, and they're I'm all like, plastic too and it's like they break so easily and it's like, okay, now what do you do? I mean, before <laughs> they used to be like the Transformers or the GoBots or whatever, you know, they used to be pretty metalish. So 
what I used to do is remember when Voltron put his hands together and he made the sword. Mm-hmm. Well, I used to break my brother's transformers all the time trying to do that. Their <laughs> arms would come off, and he would get so pissed. Oh, and then my mother, my mother would say, "You're not allowed to play with those anymore." But yeah, just a little too much imagination for the toys to allow. <laughs> So you are the first uh, official publicist that we have had on the show, Graham. Um, you are a freelance publicist, so you you represent authors, but you also uh, work with uh, Ragnarok Publications and Mechanical Muse as well. Yeah. So tell us how you got in, involved in being a publicist and what exactly a publicist does. I got started a long time ago. I used to do a lot of volunteer work, and that in itself involves a lot of being able to write press releases and being able to spread the word about things. You know, I ended up just being really good at things like that, being able to word things in such a way that interests people, kind of having a knack for knowing what's going to work and and things like that and not being able, you know, not being afraid to experiment with things and things like that. Um, And when I kind of got the idea of going into writing and things like that for, um, as a professional, um, I said, well, there's so many authors out there who don't know what to do. So I hooked up with someone else and we started to help authors out both by providing them with publicity services and doing workshops and things like that to help people out to be able to do it by themselves. Um, and basically what a publicist does is we're basically time savers. Anyone can go out there and, you know, arrange their blog tour, can do experimentation to find out what works on social media. There's lots of books out there and things like that. But having a publicist allows you to concentrate on your book deadline at the same time while your previous book is coming out. You know, we can handle scheduling. We have a long list of um, contacts and things like that. So you don't have to do that research yourself. We can give you suggestions because we've seen what works for other people. We can tell you, you know, maybe you shouldn't do this because, you know, so-and-so did this and it really didn't work out well, but someone else did this and it, you know, it everything clicked together. So a publicist is basically a collection of contacts. Um, they can help you save time and um, save you a few steps along the way as far as knowing what works. And ultimately, that uh, getting above that signal-to-noise ratio, because there are so many authors out there yeah. um, clamoring for people's attention, um, that it's, it can be hard to make any noise whatsoever and get noticed by potential readers and things like that. So, so would you say a publicist is somebody who can help get above that signal-to-noise ratio? Sometimes. The main thing to remember is that, well, a publicist can help you stay focused on what's important. Because a lot of times, especially when you're a self-published writer, or if you're a writer that's just starting out, it's, I mean, you look at the flood of things that are out there, and it's kind of nerve-wracking to think that you're one part of like all of these authors out there, and how do you do it? So a publicist can help you stay focused on the important things and to focus on the things that will actually make a difference instead of, I know a lot of authors will just flounder and try to do everything or try to do a little bit of everything, but not commit enough to actually make a difference. So, you know, having that focus is really important. Isn't a publicist also like that person uh, that you always hear like a celebrity says some stupid <laughs> shit and the publicist <laughs> has to cover it up. 
Yes. <laughs> Are there cases ever where you've had to do something like that, where somebody oh, yes. said some stupid shit and you're like, oh, oh yes. well, or you advise <laughs> them not to say some stupid shit? Oh, yes. <laughs> yep. Uh-huh. I, um, you know, it's, it's funny because, um, someone a few years ago said, you know, oh, you're a publicist. I can't tell you any secrets. And I said, well, actually it's quite the opposite. My, I make a living by keeping secrets. You know, I, I probably, you know, know more things about people in the science fiction and fantasy community than, you know, people are usually comfortable with, but it's complicated because you have to um, let an author be themselves but at the same time, you don't want them to totally screw themselves over by, I mean, everyone makes mistakes. And so you have to kind of just have a plan for, for damage control, basically. Yeah, now there's this whole thing that, that happens now and again where, uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook make it very easy for someone just to spew verbal diarrhea <laughs> out of their mouth. And uh, it's becoming it becomes sometimes a problem for the author as a situation where they can't sell books to a certain audience anymore because they say a certain thing and they alienate a specific segment of the audience. Have you seen that kind of stuff happening more and more since social media has become a a bigger platform? Yeah. And um, I mean, before I think about it, when, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, Um, and before, but that's what I remember. When you had a favorite author, you really didn't know anything about them. I mean, the biggest interaction you might have is if they came to your community to do a book signing or something like that. And then you had like, you know, you listened to them read and, you know, you would go and have your book signed and you'd have like two minutes maybe to say hi and that's it. Whereas now, I mean, the authors are just all over social media and, the thing to remember is authors are people too, and they have personalities. And while you may alienate someone, say if you decide that being political is really important to you, while you may alienate some readers, you are also speaking to another audience who might like that. So you have to find a balance um, between you know driving people away and drawing people in and also remember that in the age of social media you're actually reaching a lot more people than you would have without social media so it's you know it's kind of a, a give and take situation so we have a variety of uh, listeners to the show no doubt to authors and varying level of experience uh, when when would you say an, an author should consider taking on a publicist well, there's lots of advice out there. In fact, if you go to a writing conference, you will from editors themselves, you will hear everything from, you know, you need to start building your brand before you even start writing your book or, you know, we don't want to see books from people who don't have any kind of social media platform. But I'd say when an author comes to me and says, "I need a publicist," and they haven't really written anything or, you know, don't have anything out there, it's probably too soon. I would say in order to start building your brand, author brand or or whatever, maybe when you're done with a draft, if you're really anxious about doing something, you know, I could probably do something for you, help you get established in the community and, and meet people and things like that. But really, I think once you sell your book, that's, that's when you um, can actually do things and make a difference because then you actually know what you are in the community. You know what your book is, you know what you'll be doing. I mean, say if I myself as an author, um, I have a book written and I'm revising it, but I don't know if that book is going to sell. So I don't want to go out there and say, hey, I'm an awesome, you know, goblin author. I write YA 
flintlock fantasy. You know, I don't know if that's who I am yet. So, you know, I want to hold off on that aspect of myself and focus on me as just a writer in the community for right now. So, like, if I was going out there looking for a publicist, I would say that I wouldn't be ready yet. And what are some uh, some no-nos, some uh, social media faux pas, so to speak, that you maybe see authors making today? Maybe what's the top one or two mistakes you see people making that could be easily be avoided? Oh, the top one is definitely posting links all the time, like to your work, just saying, hey, I have a book, I have a book, I have a book, look, 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 check it out, check it out, check it out. That's called push marketing. And how I usually discuss it is say, you know, push marketing, you're pushing your book out there. You're also pushing, the harder you push, the more you're likely to push people away. You know, what you want to do is pull people in. And how you do that is you offer them something that is worth their time. Just sharing a link with them, that's not worth their time. They're going to say, oh, look, a link, whoopee-doo. You know, so instead of people pushing links out, I suggest that they, why would people want to be interested in you? They want to read your content, basically. Either you could share some stories or you could share some articles or just be yourself on social media. Just just start talking, you know, and people will start following you and, and become interested in what you have to say. So, yeah, push marketing is definitely like the biggest no-no. It's, it's, it's annoying. It You know, don't private message people as soon as you friend them with links to your book. Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Sorry. I don't stop doing that. <laughs> the other biggest thing is um, a lot of people say, don't be political, don't be religious, don't do this, don't do that. And I think that the major thing is you want to be genuine to your audience. And the thing is, you can post anything you want on social media. If it's, if it's controversial, anything like that, that's fine. As long as you do it with intent, you need to know what you're doing before you do it. So you don't want to start off on this huge rant in a temper and, and piss people off and everything. And then afterwards say, oh crap, what did I do? I didn't mean to do that. You know, before you post, think. It doesn't matter what you post, but as long as you know what the results are going to be, as long as you've given it some thought, then, you know, you're prepared and you know what you're doing and you know that it's going to piss some people off. You know, just be prepared for the repercussions of, of, of whatever you post. Now, now, you said if somebody is posting stuff like uh, showing their personality, what if an author has no personality and uh, <laughs> they're just not very interesting people what should they do to promote their book if they if if they're really sitting there thinking what what's the uh, clever thing i can say today that uh will get people interested in me but that they, they're only doing it because they feel they have to do it yeah uh, well usually people can tell um you know i know when i'm online and um especially when i've known someone for a while and then all of a sudden they start like trying too hard you know mm -hmm. people can usually tell when you try too hard and that's why i say you know, just be yourself. And if you're not like this big, I mean, I know a lot of times the sarcastic snarky people get a lot of attention and the people <laughs> who joke around and things like that. You know, if that's not your personality type, that's fine. You don't need to be a huge personality. You have a book, right? What interested you while you were writing your book? Why are you a person in this community? Just think about that 
and draw from that. And that's what you can post on social media. You know, if you are a big fan of something, share that, um, talk about that on social media. There's lots of other people who are fans of that too, and that will get you connected with them. And that's really how you get the fans that will stick with you is just finding a common ground. Most of us became writers and especially in science fiction and fantasy because we were fans first. So just remember what made you a fan and stick to that. You don't have to be a huge, you know, star or anything like that on social media. Would you say that it's essential for an author these days to be present on social media in order to be successful or connect with readers? Do you think that social media presence is is a uh, required? I hesitate to say that it's required. I wouldn't say anything is absolutely required. There's some people who really shouldn't be on social media. Um, <laughs> there are people who who literally cannot control themselves um, and what they say, and and they know that, and so they aren't on social media as much. It might be a little harder for you to get out there, but there's still so many other ways that you can connect with readers, especially, I mean, I know some people who are great in person, but online they come off as total idiots. Um, <laughs> you know, or, or if I know some people who are shy and um, for some reason they come across on social media as jerks, but they're not really jerks. They're just trying to figure out what to say. And so sometimes those people just do better writing articles and things like that. And if they do that regularly, then they can connect with people that way by going to other people's venues and sharing their work that way. So I wouldn't say that it's necessary. It does make things a lot easier as far as being able to find you. It definitely has its benefits. So I would say if you possibly could be on social media, then you should be. But I wouldn't say 100% that it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, I think one one big uh, conundrum for for people is that they're they're writers, so by nature they may feel more introverted. But then they they have to uh, kind of put on the uh, social media face in order to uh, cater to any kind of audience nowadays. Especially especially if they're introverted, they're not going to go out to conventions, and they're probably not going to go meet people as as often. Yeah. So that's kind of a it's kind of a double edged sword for for people who are really shy or introverted or, or or the the kind of people that go to forums and lurk for a really long time before they engage with anyone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for people that are in that situation, should they fake it just to just to make it, <laughs> so to speak? Well, I do I do give the advice: fake it till you make it. In some areas on social media social media can be a great way to practice not being shy just pretend to go on there pretend that you're not shy it's hard but eventually you'll be able to do it especially no one can see you no one can hear you make mistakes there's a delete button and there's an edit button so you can type responses to people if you don't like it just erase it and write it again you know it it's the average life expectancy of a tweet really is like 3 minutes and then it's gone off of people's feeds and they, you know, everyone forgets about it as long as you didn't say anything like totally inflammatory or something like that. <laughs> no one's going to think you're stupid for one tweet. So it's, you know, it's a way of getting out there. And another word of advice I might give is just don't take anything personally on the Internet. You know, everybody just says the top thing that's in their head sometimes. 
don't take it personally. Just see it as what it is. You're, you're practicing. You're practicing getting yourself out there. You're practicing talking to people. And sometimes, I mean, I've seen people kind of transform themselves, um, being more comfortable on social media and then being able to take another step and, you know, maybe do podcasts or things like that. And then going to conventions and being on panels and things like that. So, I mean, I basically started the same way where, I mean, when I was in school, I was... I would still call myself an extroverted person, but I was more quiet. And it took some practice to be able to go out and be in front of people and to talk in front of people. But basically, when you understand how important it is for you to do that and you internalize, you know, this is this is how I share what is important to me. You know, sometimes that makes a difference and you learn how to talk to people more easily. I was looking at your Facebook page and I told you this before we started recording and I found lots and lots of stuff that you like to uh, geek out about. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is always interesting because, you know, having lots of uh, things that, that, that make you passionate about them is always cool. So uh, I was wondering, what is the what is the big thing right now that you're geeking out about the most? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I, I do go back and forth a lot as far as whatever is in my attention for the moment. I would say a lot of anime right now I'm getting I'm really getting into, especially while I write. It's it's hard for me to read a lot of regular prose and things like that. So I do tend to read a lot of um, manga, which is uh, Japanese comics. And I watch a lot of the anime shows. Uh, right now, I'm really into Attack on Titan. I, I was before and now I'm waiting for season two of the anime to come out. And so it's just waiting and getting excited. And I heard that it's supposed to happen this year. So, you know, I, I'm rewatching everything and reading and everything. <laughs> and then the other thing, um, I actually, when I was in college, I used to love Sailor Moon which is a anime show about a bunch of girls who defend the world, basically. And they go from regular school girls and they transform into the, you know, have these cute sailor girl outfits and they have these magical powers and things like that. It's really kind of girly. But one thing that always bothered me about that was that, you know, the main characters were these girls, but then inevitably, like almost every episode, this rose would come flying across the screen. And here comes Tuxedo Mask, the male character, and he's going to come save the day and rescue Sailor Moon from her inevitable screw ups. Um, so that always kind of bothered me. But last year, Sailor Moon Crystal came out, which is the brand new version. And um, it was supposed to be the version that would speak to today's generation. So I was kind of excited to see what they did with it. And basically what they did was they took everything I liked about the original series, and it also added everything that I thought the original series kind of lacked. So um, the girls ended up being powerful people. Sailor Moon rescued tuxedo mask more than he rescued her so it really ended up being um even the theme song talked about girls and how they don't need boys to save them and that they have their power of friendship and things like that and i actually interviewed someone from viz media who puts out sailor moon about you know her experience with the whole legacy of sailor moon and and how girls today might get a different feel for it than they did back then and you know it's it's all going in a very positive direction so that that really pleased me i made my husband watch it with me so <laughs> <laughs> i actually watched sailor moon when i was uh used to come on i forget which channel it came on but um i pretty much watched any cartoon that came on but i remember sailor moon being 
similar to any of the other shows where you had like a regular person and then they transform into something cool. So I've always liked yeah. that idea of like He Man or oh yeah, <laughs> or uh, you know even uh, uh, Thundercats. They were kind of they were always kind of still cats, but. Yeah. something about like when he looked into his yeah sort of thunder <laughs> yeah. give me sight be on sight <laughs> yeah i've always liked that kind of uh we're regular people and we transform into something cool so yeah i like the i like this original sailor moon and i'll have to check out this new one for sure so anime is the current uh geek du jour what what's forthcoming in the geeky realm that you're looking forward to melanie metters um, well, like I said, um, Attack on Titan Season 2, still anxiously awaiting that. There's so many movies coming out this year. It's kind of crazy trying to figure out, you know, how the heck I'm going to go and, and be able to <laughs> see all of these things. Um, I'm kind of excited about Civil War. Um, that's coming up just to see what they do with that in the movie. And, of course, uh, Rogue One, after seeing the uh, trailer for that new Star Wars movie, um, I really can't wait to see that too. Um, it just, it looks amazing. It looks really exciting and, um, jerks be damned. Uh, you know, I'm really <laughs> excited to see, uh, you know, a strong female lead in that. And I'm still waiting for a new Doctor Who season to start. You know, I have a little hand in a lot of fandoms, so. <laughs> and I think you're the first person to actually mention Doctor Who on the podcast. We've been doing it for about a year and I don't think that's a topic we have yet to dive into. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's one of my favorites. Um, I, I used to watch it. I used to hide behind the couch, and my dad used to watch it. My mom wasn't really a fan. It would come on after some other show that they would watch, and I used to hide behind the couch when I was supposed to be in bed or something like that and, and watch it, and it, it always kind of blew my mind when I was really little. I, I, would, I was probably like four years old. I just kind of forgot about it when I was growing up, but then when the new um, stuff started coming out. I really got into it again. I really like how it's usually a really positive thing. I mean, it's not so much stuff can be depressing. And um, I mean, you have, I mean, ever since Superman died, you know, we, we've been going on a on a kind of depressing trend in, in geek culture sometimes. Um, I think Doctor Who is one of those things that I can always depend on, you know, bringing me up instead of taking me down. <laughs> Speaking, speaking of bringing, speaking of bringing, yeah, that's what to say. Uh, speaking of bringing you down, you're probably going to say the same thing, Rob. Is it time for our contractually obligated? It is. Okay. <laughs> we are contractually obligated by unknown forces to mention Grimdark on on every one of our episodes. <laughs> so, Rob, would you like to take this one? Uh, what do you think about Grimdark, Millie Matters? What you do you love it? Really love it? Or? I enjoy reading it. Um, my first Grimdark experience was um, Mark Lawrence's first series, and I really liked it. Um, I've always really enjoyed exploring the dark sides of people. I mean, when I was little, my first favorite character on Star Wars was Darth Vader. And going back to Voltron, I, I always was fascinated with the evil prince on there, too. My mom was kind of worried about me when I was little. <laughs> but I really enjoy just Reading that, it kind of gives me an outlet for some of the darker stuff inside, I guess. Um, being able to be in someone else's shoes while I read that, and they can do all this bad stuff that, you know, I could never do without getting arrested or, you know, have some <laughs> severe consequences. So I do I do enjoy reading it. Um, I tried to write some a couple of years ago, um, and I had a great idea. 
I had a really good start going where, I mean, I had these characters that I, I really liked. Things started going weird when um, about, I don't know, two months into it, it seemed like I had two-month-long PMS. I was seriously in like this bitchy, depressed mode, and and I realized that as things were, were going, it, it just wasn't... Well, you know, another hint was that my um, my working title for my grimdark novel was "Fabulous Vikings." Um, yeah, I, like I decided it. I just wasn't cut out to write grimdark. Uh, when I was talking to one of my friends about what was going on, I'm like, you know, I have such a good idea and a good start, but it's just not behaving itself. It's not doing what it should be doing. And I think he tolerated me for a couple months until finally one day I said to him, I can't figure out what's wrong. I, I don't know what, why I can't write this story. And he said, maybe it's because you're writing something that's totally wrong for you. And I looked at the title, Fabulous Vikings, and I said, you know, you're probably right. Um, <laughs> so I would well. say maybe some people aren't cut out for writing it. But, you know, I think a lot of times, I mean, I write funny things and, and lighter things. Um, and while I enjoy having a darker side to it, um, and I can get pretty dark, but there always has to be, you know, humor to it. There, There's always, you know, I mean, I would have, say, a Darth Vader type character and he'd be on his big, you know, you don't know the power of the dark side. But then he'd trip and fall on his face and, <laughs> you know, and then he'd have to recover and, and try and make himself look all bad and mean again um so yeah i'm not sure i'm cut out to write grim dark i could, grim dork i could probably do but <laughs> yeah we have uh we have all sorts of different uh takes on grim dark these days uh we actually did an interview with dirge magazine not too long ago and one thing i mentioned is that i think the next evolution of dark fiction is going to go more in the uh uh, Deadpool direction where it's like yeah. just so ridiculously over the top that it becomes all this really dark stuff becomes funny. Yeah. I, I mean, that's I, I kind of think that's where it's going. Yeah. That's probably more, more my thing. I mean, I know like Jeff Salyards and, and Mark Lawrence and Joe Abercrombie and things like that. It's like, you know, they write these awesome badass characters and my awesome badass characters just always have this, this thing about them that, you know, a dorky side or, or something that, you know, they're insecure about their badassness, I guess, or something. And it just doesn't, it doesn't work out in the traditional sense. Well, I want to see fabulous Vikings now. I think you should still, <laughs> still write that. Maybe redo the story, but get that going again. Hey, Sounds you never know. So you no doubt have your finger on the pulse of the publishing industry on a day-to-day -day basis. You kind of see the trends and things that are coming and going. What do you see as kind of trending? What's forthcoming? What's hot? What's uh, What should people be writing? Do you see any emerging markets that are kind of taking place right now? Well, um, kind of going along with what we just said, I mean, I think people are, are more comfortable seeing a darker but funny thing. They're not afraid to be funny. Um, and... I know that after, you know, people say like the post 9-11 world, um, things got dark. We started, you know, with all of the comic books and the New 52 is a lot darker than DC's previous stuff. And, you know, even even Marvel is, is getting kind of, you know, a little dark and everything. I think what we're going to see is things lightening up a little bit and probably having a, a mashup of the funny and the dark 
I mean, I always say it's dangerous. You, you, you don't want to chase after a hot topic or whatever, because you'll always end up being too late. So always just write what you want. But at the same time, whatever you write is going to reflect the world that you're living in right now and who you are. If, if you experience something in your life that makes you feel passionate enough to write a book about it, then that's going to be your next hot topic. Since everyone lives in the same world, people are going to experience things differently, but you're going to find people who what you say will reson resonate with. Um, so as far as that goes, I think that like we said about Deadpool and things like that, I think that that's going to become more popular. Um, people not being afraid to laugh at, you know, the darker things. And I think that, I mean, that could possibly point in a direction of things becoming a little lighter, being able to laugh at the things that scare us. You know, I know I, know I always enjoy um, something, you know, like Hamlet, say Hamlet can be really dark at times, but then you ha always have Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and, you know, you'll, you're able to laugh at moments during that too. I think that that's something that is going to become more prevalent. Well, I think uh, we've said before on the show that we're kind of the uh, defenders of grim dark in a way. We haven't really haven't really seen anything that that warrants this. You know, uh, grim dark is the wallowing and shit uh, <laughs> genre. Uh, I haven't really read anything like that. Maybe I just don't read no, enough. Um, I think even like when you read the quintessential grim dark stuff, there's always a snarky side to it where. Mm -hmm. There's something to laugh at. There's something, and there's always, I mean, your your main character always has to have a goal of some sort, and that is what makes him appealing to the reader. And that goal is something that's important to him. There will always be something for your reader to sympathize with, as long as he has, you know, a clear motivation and everything like that. So your character always has to be likable in some way. I know, say, in Mark Lawrence's series, um, you know, his, his character comes out with some good ones that, that are funny and you can see why he's doing what he's doing. And it, it, it's hard to see him as 100% bad. We're not taking like Sauron and saying, you know, oh, it's cool to, I mean, I don't even know what, what Sauron's point was really. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> it's um, scary. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> Scream at people. But um, I think people who don't read Grimdark are the people who are saying, oh, it's all dark and, and, and dreary and disgusting and, and Grimdark is Satan. Um, <laughs> you know, if you actually read it, I mean, it's just it's a darker slant on fantasy. And but there's still hope in the world. You know, it, it, it wouldn't appeal to any readers if it didn't have that. Yeah. You mentioned uh, yeah, Darth Vader and uh and Sauron and that, you know, there's, there's a big difference between the two. And in, in my mind, you actually wrote an article for SF signal about it's called heroism is, a, is in the eye of the beholder. And I thought this was an interesting read because you talk about how, you know, Darth Vader has very clear goals throughout the series, maybe not so much in the prequels, but <laughs> uh, we won't, we won't go there, but he, he wants to destroy the Alliance and, he sees himself as this like old school Jedi uh, hero in a way. And he wants to turn his son to the right way, the dark side of the force, which is the right way. And then, and then on the other hand, you have Sauron who's just like, I'm going to get you. What do you think really helps make a villain uh, feel real to, to readers and not just some like eyeball on a mountain <laughs> screaming at people? 
<laughs> well, I think I think the most important thing is is having your villain have a motivation. To use Darth Vader as an example, I mean his his main motivation was love. Um, he wanted to save his wife. He had a vision that she was going to die, and that's you know that scared him. And his allies were the people who were saying, "No, that's not important to you. That you know that shouldn't be important to you. Let's go save." the world or some kind of abstract. I mean, it, it wasn't a personal goal to him. It wasn't, you know, he wanted to chase after what was in his heart. And he happened to have a mentor at the right or wrong time who influenced him and said, you know, well, why shouldn't you go after what you want? There's no reason why you can't save her. There's ways of making it so that someone can't ever die. And so, you know, he turned toward the dark side to chase after what was important to him. That was his motivation. He had a goal, a motivation, and then, of course, he was conflicted. I mean, I kind of lost it when he killed the younglings. You know, that's when I said, well, you know, that's bullshit. You know, what's up with that? But, um... Up till that point, you know, you can see his conflict and why he turned the way he did. And even even if you only focus on on the original trilogy, you know, you can see he actually reaches out to his son. He it, it's not that he is one hundred percent evil. It's that you know people make bad choices for whatever reason, and you know he embraced the fact that he was on the dark side, but he didn't see that as being bad. He saw that as he was embracing his passion and that he wanted to bring order to the force. He wanted to bring order to the galaxy, you know, and he, he saw that the emperor was the path to attaining that goal. Um, whereas Sauron is, we don't even know who he is. He's just this eyeball. And in the books, really, I mean, I didn't even get that he was that constructed as being an eyeball on a mountain. I, he was kind of like this this imaginary overarching force over Middle Earth. And, you know, he could see everything and, and whatever, but he had no personality. He had he had a goal of, of, you know, conquering Middle Earth, but what was he going to do with that? We have no clue. You know, if you only read the original book, the reader has no clue what Sauron wants, why he wants it, is he conflicted about something? He's absolutely not human in any way. And so it just kind of is flat. I mean, you, you read the book because you like the main characters, basically, and you are following their journey, but you don't feel emotionally invested in the villain or, you know, you don't feel that conflict within yourself. Well, maybe what would happen if, if Sauron won? Is he right in some way or, you know, something like that? I think when the reader wonders to themselves, is the villain really wrong? You know, why shouldn't there be peace in the world? Why shouldn't there be order? You know, maybe if he won, more wars wouldn't happen. Maybe other conflicts wouldn't happen. I think that makes a big impact on a reader if they can actually say, Who, who's really right in this situation? And I suppose the opposite is if you have a villain who doesn't have a motivation and is just doing evil for the sake of doing evil, it's just not as an engaging story. Yeah. If the guy doesn't have a goal, how can you feel anything for him? It's just kind of everything falls flat. Yeah. One of the coolest characters in recent history, I think he's not a fantasy character, but Walter White from Breaking Bad series is a really good example of a pretty shitty person that is doing <laughs> things he thinks is for the good of his family. The, yeah. the whole the whole series is based on him trying to provide for his family. And there's that great scene in uh in one of the last episodes 
spoiler, but there's a great, there's this great scene where, uh, he gets in a fight with his wife and they're struggling on the ground and he stands up and his son's like looking at him all wide eyed and, and his wife is terrified. And then he goes, you know, we're a family or whatever. And it's this great scene where you're just like, okay, he's completely lost his family now and he's lost everything he's been, he's been going for. So now he has the carte blanche to be a total asshole now. Like he was already becoming an asshole. So yeah, characters like that, even if they're gray, uh, which is the, the, the thing grimdark readers tend to like are the kind of gray, morally ambiguous characters. They're going to resonate with readers because they, they do have that clear goal in mind and they're looking for something specific. And then some people will do anything to reach that goal. Even if it means turning to the dark side and getting a fucked up prune face like the emperor. (laughs) Well, I think that's something that we all can, um, identify with is, you know, sometimes you make a bad choice or sometimes you make a choice for the right reasons, but you know, it might not be the right thing and things spiral out of control. And, you know, you end up going down this path where it's not what you had originally intended, but you have no idea how to get off of it. So, you know, you need to make a choice, either try to fix it, which seems impossible, or just own it and continue on down this path. And I think a lot of a lot of villains that we can sympathize with happen to be in that situation where Darth Vader at the end of Jedi, he's kind of like, you know, I screwed up, but... I can't do anything else because the dark side is so powerful that I can't fight it. So that's why I am Darth Vader. And at the end, when he saves Luke and he kills the Emperor, you know, he makes a choice. And of course, he dies because of that. But that's basically what he had to choose. That was the only inevitable conclusion for that. So that blog post is... uh Hell Heroism is in the Eye of the Beholder. That's available at the sfsignal.com. You are a pretty extensive blogger, uh, geekmom.com, as well as the Once in Future podcast. I mean, you've got many, many blogs, so folks want to keep up with all the <laughs> awesome blogging that you're doing. Uh, definitely keep an eye on um, all the cool things that you have coming down the pike. Uh, Geek Mom is a pretty cool site as well. Yeah, um, it's a group of mothers who are geeky. And recently we merged with Geek Dad, so... You know, we have a bigger audience there um, of people where we can reach, you know, folks that may not have known about us before. Very cool. And uh, how did you get involved with the Once in Future podcast? That's a very cool show. You guys, uh, the Anton Strout is the host and uh, interviews a myriad of awesome authors and such. But uh, you blog for them as well, right? Yep. I started off really being um, Anton's publicist and the podcast, because he does that, um, was kind of in the package. So yeah, I, I started blogging there and I do, I love the ad stuff there and things like that. I mean, you know, the host is an effing slave driver. Um, he pays me in fish and he calls me Smeagmel, but you know, he let he lets me out of the cave every once in a while, so I can't complain. <laughs> Do you kind of see podcast as kind of a growing kind of platform for authors and such? Yeah, I think podcasts are are a lot of fun. Um, I think that they allow authors to open up a little bit more about things that they're interested in and let their personalities shine a bit more more than just a text based blog or something like that. And I know that, you know, podcasts also have, uh, you know, you can 
like I said, have your, your personality shine through. I mean, one of the reasons why I like Once in Future podcast is because I find that it remains a positive force, a positive force in a nerdiverse. I'm always inspired by things that our guests say over there. And, um, you know, we have some really awesome guests from fantasy, science fiction, comics, gaming, things like that. Um, and, you know, I've learned things about writing from game designers. I've, I've learned storytelling ideas from comic book people. And the thing about that show is that it, it's positive. There's no tearing down of people. There's just always a, a great attitude. You know, Anton's attitude as far as bringing people together and chatting and, and ha being casual like that. People coming together and geeking out about books in the best possible way. Um, it's something that I'm proud to be a part of. And then there's other podcasts that, you know, they have their own focus. Um, as far as, you know, sometimes there's like snarky ones that are, you know, about criticizing things and, and making fun of things. And if that's what you're into, then, you know, that's a way that you can be real doing that. It just opens up a new way of expressing yourself. Yeah, Rob, you got to stop being snarky. And stop tearing you down. On the <laughs> stop show. tearing me down. Oh, <laughs> come on, guys. <laughs> you're always fucking tearing me down. Keep, keep it real, guys. Keep it real. <laughs> Piece of shit, Rob. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, so that's the once in future podcast.com if folks wanted to check that out, which I highly suggest. And I uh, know Anton hasn't been feeling as well as of late, so we are wishing him positive mojo and good thoughts to uh, continued um, recovery over there. I'm sure he would <clears throat> appreciate that. Koala hugs to you, Anton, <laughs> over the airwaves here. Awesome. So uh, we are just about out of time, but we are going to wrap this show up with, of course, we've got the geek mom herself, Melanie Metters. We're going to have a 30 second geek out. Um, which is basically we're going to shoot a myriad of topics at you. You have only 30 seconds to respond to each topic, at which I will cut you off and you will have to stop. <laughs> okay. Um, it's a bit jarring. So It is jarring. <laughs> You'll be like, you dick, you just cut me off. But that's kind of part of it. Okay, so this week on the Grim Toddings podcast, we have Melody Mel Metters, and she's going to geek out about a very, very, a variety of topics. I meant to do that. Yeah. Uh, so I will list the topic, and then she has thirty seconds to ramble off as much stuff as she would like about that topic. Are you ready? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. Good luck. Okay. Good luck. Topic number one will be big giant mechs. Big Giant Mechs. Well, what is not to geek out about Big Giant Mechs? It's awesome to see an interface between human and machine and how humans can make, you know, humans are just small and, and helpless, really, as far as strength goes against giant monsters. But when they are meshed up with these giant robots that can beat the shit out of the things, um, it, it's really fun to watch and it's fun to see all the different ways that mechs can come to be i mean voltron with the five lions coming together ah time is up melanie damn it it's all you get for mechs <laughs> how, how was that was it jarring <laughs> was that oh, jarring enough it for was you? fine but i mean i just got to voltron and i was like right. really starting to get into it <laughs> topic number two please philip topic number two will be halflings ready go halflings are the dorks of the fantasy world i mean when you look at Samwise Gamgee, he's a freaking gardener. What can he do to save the world? Which is what appeals to me about them. I mean, you can take a gardener or a cook and they really are bigger than what they seem to be, just like normal people. So it kind of gives us a way of saving the world ourselves. We can see in them 
um, our weaknesses and how we can overcome them and be champions ourselves. Oh, okay. That was good. That was very <laughs> succinct. That was good. <laughs> okay. Oh, I love doing this for some reason. <laughs> I kind of hate and love it's doing a little, it. <laughs> evil. It's a little evil, I have to say. <laughs> okay, next topic. Let's see if you can do 30 seconds on this one. The new Star Wars movies, The Force Awakens and the upcoming movies in the future. Ready, go. Oh, gosh. New Star Wars, I absolutely love. When I walked out of it, um, I was talking to my husband about all the things I was excited about and actually burst into tears, and he looked at me weird because I realized... You know, when Ray closes her eyes at the end and she reaches out and feels the Force, that was what I was looking for in my entire life of Star Wars fandom. Um, having a character that, when I was little, I could pretend to be rather than being a boy all the time really meant a lot to me. And I can't wait for Rogue One to come and have a future generation of girls be really stoked about being represented in the Star Wars universe. And of course, then there's Poe. Oh! <laughs> and of uh, course, then there's <laughs> nothing. Then- <laughs> I like these people hanging like that, you know. <laughs> okay, next topic is Doctor Who. Ready, go. All right. Well, Doctor Who is something that's been important to me in recent years because, like I said, he's a, he's a positive guy. Um, he saves the world, and there's not a lot of, oh, what am I going to do? I'm having an identity crisis, you know, kind of thing that you see so often in science fiction and fantasy. It's, it's really positive. It makes me feel good. Um, when I'm down, I can always turn on Doctor Who and, and get a good feeling back. Um, I love Ten. He's my favorite. Um, but I also- Time is up. <laughs> <laughs> Next one. Uh, this was part of your uh, profile. Uh, metal eating squirrels. I'm curious what's <laughs> going to come yes. from this. Please tell us. 30 seconds. Go. My husband has a love-hate relationship with squirrels. They used to chase him around campus on- in college and throw things at him. And I never believed him that they could possibly be evil creatures until we moved into our house in Marlboro, Mass, where we would have these squirrels that would eat through our garbage bin, no matter if it was plastic or metal. We had a squirrel eat through our metal trash barrel. And from then on, I mean, they're just evil. They they wreak havoc in the neighborhood. They chase kids around. Okay. Evil. <laughs> They're evil. evil squirrels. Evil squirrels. Evil squirrels are evil. I mean, squirrel even sounds kind of evil. It sounds yeah. like an evil. It sounds like one of Sauron's like henchmen or something. Squirrel. Okay, next one. Uh, this is tied into your Eye of the Beholder uh, blog post. So I wanted to see what you know about the monsters, the beholders from Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Thirty seconds. Go. <laughs> Um, Beholders are one of my son's favorite monsters from Dungeons and Dragons. Um, They are blobbish beasts with one big eye and tentacles with other eyes. And they're, they're just kind of creepy because they look at you and they see everything. And it's, it's just freakish because you just don't know what, what they're thinking. And, and when you have something staring at you, no matter what you do and possibly like knowing what you think and feel and, knowing what you're okay <laughs> i'd hate to to be a beholder with poor vision who knows oh that <laughs> hey that's a short story right there that is yeah there you go <laughs> the beholder who needs contact lenses the the, the, beho- contact lenses. the beholder with astigmatism 
<laughs> Which I don't even know what that is, but they always talk about it and contact with commercials. <laughs> Are those adventurers standing in front of me? I can't. <laughs> Come into the light, adventurers. Oh, crap. Wait, wait, wait. I dropped a contact. <laughs> don't move. Don't move. <laughs> okay. And next one. We just got a couple more and then we'll, okay. yeah, we'll wrap it up. Next one is from one of the posts you made on Facebook. You said possibly you may write a story based on this idea. Uh, I've battled my whale life instead of I've battled my whole life. Oh my Share God. with us 30 seconds. Go. Um, well, you know, all of us have an inner whale. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, we, we just have to connect with that large beast within us and, and just let it go. Be the cosmic whale that can um, float through the evening sky and save the world with its evening song of puttering and and strange fart sounds. I got that fart sounds in, though. <laughs> you got the fart sounds in. Okay. That's all that matters. Cosmic Whale. The Cosmic Whale. Sounds good. Uh, when I do my spinoff podcast, it will be called Cosmic Whale. <laughs> featuring Philip Overby. You have to give me credit, though. Okay. Okay, last topic is being a publicist. Share with us 30 seconds of compacted wisdom. Ready? Go. I love being a publicist because I see it as helping people achieve their dreams. So basically think about what you want from the world, what, why you want to be a writer, why you want to be publicized, and go after that. Um, and do whatever it takes, whatever you need to do, and just do it. Don't overthink it, and be yourself, um, because you are a person who is worthy of being known, um, and you are important, and you have an important message to say. So share that with the world, and don't be afraid. Time up. Perfect. Time is up. <laughs> Good timing. Hit that pretty well. <laughs> Excellent. So you are a publicist. Are you taking on any more clients or anything right now in, in your freelance uh, publicity gig right now? I might be. Um, it really depends on the situation. Um, right now, I'm looking to have maybe four or five long-term clients thinking about more about like career building than publicizing one book. Um, and that is only because I have the two other bigger publicity gigs with Ragnarok and Mechanical Muse. And I also need to focus more on my, my own writing career, um, which is starting to go in a pretty positive direction. So yeah, I mean, if, if somebody wants to reach out to me, I will definitely talk to them. And um, I mean, even if we just do a consult or something like that, you know, there's different ways that I can help people. So excellent. And so what's your contact information for those who might want to get in touch with you or maybe follow you on social media or check out your blogs? Where's the best place that they can track you down, Melanie? Um, the best place is through my website, www.melaniermetters.com. Um, and there I will try to keep an updated list of all of my articles that I have here and there and also have a link to where you can check out my publicity services and check out my fiction work. And do you have any con appearances or anything coming up soon? Um, this year is kind of a quiet year for me as far as cons go. Um, I will be at Gen Con um, in August, um, which is in Indianapolis. Um, that's a big gaming convention, but we also have a um, writer's symposium, which is really awesome. Um, we ha Our guest of honor this year is Robin Hobb, 
And um, yeah, and every year we have really awesome people. Um, Pat Rothfuss is always there. Anton Strout's always there. Aaron Rosenberg, Greg Wilson, Ed Greenwood, Lucy Snyder's sometimes there. Kat Rambo's going to be there this year. It's a whole lot of fun. Um, and it's it's actually, the Writer Symposium is free to go to if you have a Gen Con badge, which itself is um, 80 or $90 for the whole weekend. So it's really a pretty good price for what you're getting. Awesome. Awesome. Very cool. So August, folks can uh, find you in Indianapolis at Gen Con then. Yep. And say hello. And you're on the Facebook and the Twitter, MySpace, LO, all those places people can. What's (laughs) MySpace? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Facebook and Twitter. (laughs) A little bit easier to track you down. Not a lot of authors on MySpace. Champions of Itultus is the anthology. Melanie Metter's story, A Wholehearted Halfling, can be found in that, available now on Amazon. Check out her website, go buy the book. And uh, Melanie, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think we just kind of scratched the geeky surface of what you have to offer. I'm pretty sure that you're going to come back on the show um, at some point. I think we, we, we just got started with you. But uh, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and being a continuous force of geeky mom awesome sauce and uh best of luck to uh the novel and all the awesome publicity things you have going but uh, thank you again for joining us on the grim tidings podcast it's been a great to finally get in touch with you and uh and uh, looking forward to all the cool things you have coming up yeah, thank you for having me on i really had fun you can find us online at facebook.com slash the grim tidings podcast or on twitter at grim dark fiction download the show on itunes stitcher or podbean And be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grimdark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grimdark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. Mm